Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right. Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere. Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from right here. Shut up. How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one. <laughs> circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. Happy Independence Day. Yeah, happy Independence Day to you. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. I'm tired. It, you know, the show was uh, went on pretty late last night. And, you know, like yeah. we were talking about before we got started that, you know, some people in our neighborhoods respectively started the fireworks show a little early. So yeah. I, for a late night. But I'm tired, but okay. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't get that. I, you know, I said, I said to my wife, what's going on with some people? It was like one thirty, and someone decided to do their own impromptu fireworks show. And I thought, oh. I thought, I hope maybe they were, I don't know drunk or doing some kind of bizarre sort of, uh, I don't know, gesture of, oh, Mildred, will you marry me? And look at all this wonderful thing. And oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Something, something. I, I want there to be some reason aside from somebody just being an inconsiderate jackass, I guess, you know, <laughs> I hope that's the case. Well, hopefully Mildred got her proposal. You know, that's, night, that's what so, I'd, you know. I'd, I'd like to think anyway. But, uh, but yeah, that was crazy. We are recording on Independence Day, which is, I think, a, I think a first for us. And, and as I was saying to you, it would be weird to not talk about that. Cause I was thinking about that last night as I was preparing the shows you were too. I know you said, and to me, it's, it's interesting in sort of a sad way is that we, we are probably less free now because of what's going on than we've been in any independence day. Well, in my, in my lifetime, certainly. And that will just be a, you know, a temporary thing. But, you know, I was also thinking about the nature of this, you know, uh, this reduction in our freedom. And of course, we're doing it, you know, to protect others. And then that made me think about, well, the, you know, the, the sight, the spectacle of, of the president's uh, uh, Mount Rushmore rally. And, and whenever I see a big crowd, regardless of whether it's at a rally or a protest, and I see a bunch of people who are packed together without masks, and I just, I just think, wow, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. And, and, there's a part of me that keeps on thinking, you know, I heard the, the Fox business interview with uh, with President Trump this week where he said, you know, I'm actually for masks and I don't have to wear one because I'm the president and people around me get tested. I was like, OK, that's fine. And there's a part of me that keeps on hoping he's going to make this big gesture and go out in a crowd and say, you know, look at this. I'm putting a mask on. And I would like you to all do that now. Wow, what an example that would be. Because, you know, Mitch McConnell or Marco Rubio or whatever can say whatever they want. But you know, it's President Trump is the one who I think people would really sort of respect. And I think when, when people see the president just and the president's crowd with no masks and no social distancing, it, it sends a pretty powerful message. And 
I can't help but be continually disappointed at that. <laughs> well, I guess, um, <clears throat> first of all, I, d- I just want to say, I don't know how many listeners we have in South Dakota, but South Dakota is actually one of my family's favorite places. We've uh-huh. talked about huh. um, possibly moving there someday. We we wow. really, I mean, I love my home state of Florida. Yeah, but South Dakota is... Um, an exceptionally beautiful place. Um, um, we, you know, we love the culture up there. We love, you know, the, the natural setting and Mount Rushmore is, is probably, and I'm not exaggerating, one of the most beautiful and like awe-inspiring places I've ever been to. It's just, I mean, just even, even beside the monument itself, it, the Black Hills are just beautiful. They're breathtaking, they're pristine. And so, you know, when I heard that this, that this was happening at Mount Rushmore, um, I just, on a personal level, I was really excited because we had this incredible visit to Mount Rushmore and this incredible visit to South Dakota about a year and a half ago. My my whole family had an amazing time. Um, and, you know, I know that we'll get into kind of the, the politics of COVID and, and the mask mandates and everything. I know that that's, you know, on our roster of things to talk about. But, um, you know, I guess, I guess my opinion has changed so much over the last three months, you know, just, I guess we're all sitting at home, we're working from home, you know, we're trying to make do We're, you know, I hate using the phrase new normal. It drives me crazy, but it really is sort of a new normal. And like you said, it is temporary, but it's given me a lot of time to think about all of this, all of these mask mandates and, you know, outrage over, you know, people not wearing masks and, I guess my overarching concern is really about the economy. And, um, you know, this this Fourth of July just for me feels weird because it is because we are less free because of covid, um, but also because I, I can't help but think about all the people that I know who have lost their businesses, who are having to stay home from work, who aren't working, who aren't making money, who are in these really dire financial straits. And, and a lot of them have you know, rebounded to some extent. Some people have, you know, gotten their jobs back. Um, you know, companies have, some companies have started rehiring, but I guess with the threat of something like this happening again, that's sort of my overarching concern. I think a lot of Republicans have it right to advocate for the mask wearing. I think if there's, you know, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it's like a silver bullet, that it's, that it's going to be this like you know, this magical wand that keeps people from getting COVID. But I think if it helps, then we should be doing it. And and if only because I don't want to see what happened in March where the economy completely shut down happened again. I just have too much yeah. pain in my heart for people who, who, I mean, my family suffered, you know, our, our, um, our financial situation suffered over those months and it's starting to come back. But I just really feel for like single parents and, and people who are having to, you know, make adjustments to their lives, possibly not send their kids to school in the fall. And so, you know, I look around and I think to myself, I, you know, what, what do we want? Do, are we, are we cool wearing masks and, and not gathering or are we cool shutting down the economy again? And I guess, you know, maybe that's, that's a more conservative approach, but I, I guess I'm putting the economy over the mask wearing in terms of importance. Well, I guess I, I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around that because it doesn't seem to me it's an either or. I mean, uh, uh, Goldman Sachs, which is certainly no uh, left, radical left wing sort of communist organization, right? Goldman Sachs sort of is, is sort of like the exemplar of American capitalism. There, you know, their, their mm-hmm. research this week basically said, "Hey, you know, we actually wearing masks could actually have a huge impact, uh, a positive impact 
on GDP and that and that they oh, said, no, I agree with you on this. I probably didn't. I probably didn't explain the correlation. I agree. I agree with you on this. I think that if people were to wear masks, if it were to prevent the disease and to prevent the possible closure of businesses and, and schools and things like that, um, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I probably didn't explain that. And, that and so I guess that's well. that's why I'm so puzzled, because it seems to me that that in not sort of setting an example and sort of you know, modeling this sort of behavior that the president is actually, it's not just a political statement, but it also causes, you know, both uh, economic and uh, economic harm. And of course it leads to more, you know, more infections and more deaths. And so I'm just, I'm just puzzled why the president of the United States, whoever that person is, wouldn't, take a cost-free symbolic action that would almost certainly save lives and help to improve the economy. It's just, it, I don't, I don't understand that at all. Do you? Um, no. And I would go, I would take it even a step farther. Um, so there are a lot of Republicans, I'm not going to say politicians, because I, I think there are a lot of Republicans in office who have um, advocated for the wearing of masks and, and face coverings. I know in Florida, both senators, Rick Scott, Marco Rubio, have advocated for it. I mean, even Governor Ron DeSantis has advocated for it, um, although, you know, he's he's had some some policies that that cite otherwise. But um you know, I would take it a step farther and I would say that activists who now I think there are some legitimate reasons for, for obviously for not wearing the mask. If you're exercising outside, if you're a small child if, or you have small children, if um, you, you know, you have breathing problems. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions to the rule. But for the most part, I think, you know, looking back in recent history to the last three months, our economy was completely shuttered. Um, and, and that was because COVID numbers were spiking and now we're, we're in a situation where they're spiking again. And I and I it makes me angry as a Republican when I see Republican activists, um, you know, kind of pointing to this and saying, well, OK, well, forget all of this. I'm not going to wear a mask if it stops the spread of disease. And I think scientifically, you know, there, there are some loopholes and there are some you know conflicting evidence. But for the most part, most, you know, of the medical community agrees that 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 these masks do at some point stop the spread of this disease. If it stops the spread of the disease and if it means saving the economy and saving lives, I, I, you know, I'll put on a mask. Um, I'll do my part. I'll put on a mask. I don't think, you know, I don't feel like a sheep. I don't, you know, so yeah, I, I do wish the president would pop a mask on his face, you know, just to, and I, and I wish other Republicans would do the same because I think it sends a message that you're not taking this economic downturn seriously. And, and I understand where they're coming from. Um, I do understand where they're coming from. But I think, you know, we're, we're looking at things. We're looking at the harsh reality of the fact that we may have, you know, spikes and this may happen again. I, I think we should all have a mask. I think we should wear one more in public, obviously, unless you're exercising or you have some, you know, pre-existing condition. And I think that should be the end of it. If it means saving the economy, then it means saving the economy. And that's kind of where I stand. Yeah, because it seems to me that most most other prominent Republicans have actually come around to that view. And I have no problem saying it. In fact, even on, you know, uh, even on the, the president's uh, presumably still somewhat favored news source, you know, Fox News and Fox and Friends, their host saying, you know, the, everyone should wear a mask and Sean Hannity yep. advocating for mask wearing. And yet, 
And and I don't, you know, I, I always think psychoanalysis at a distance, especially, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm not that kind of doctor, but it seems to me that that President Trump, once he stakes out a position, it is more difficult for him to pull back from a position than maybe than maybe your typical politician. And I think maybe on some level, it seems to me that he would feel that being in a mask now would be some sort of capitulation or sign of weakness. And my sense is that more than most other politicians, I would say President Trump has a is deeply concerned about appearing weak. And despite what all the positive ramifications would be of his of his leadership on this issue, I feel that his concern that this would make him appear weak and backing down actually overrides both the economic and public health benefits that might come from that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I agree with you. And I and I think that, um, you know, I, I understand the idea that this should be something that is affected state by state. Um, and it is something and I and I understand that the argument that, um, you know, mandating mass on a on a federal level would be, you know, would would probably not be something that he would ever do, nor nor would it be completely constitutional. But we are dealing with a situation that we haven't had to deal with before. Um, you know, s- people love to bring up like swine flu and bird flu and H1N1, you know, H1N1, all, all these, these, you know, other pandemics that have, I guess, uh, happened during at least my lifetime, my adult life. Um, and, you know, we also didn't have the benefit of, you know, as big a 24 hour news cycle, it also wasn't as things weren't as politicized as they are now. But I think now, you know, we all have access to masks. Um, most places I've been have masks free for the taking. Um, you know, they're, they're a lot more accessible than they once were. Um, I think that in terms of just, you know, doing your part, helping the economy, the mask has never bothered me. I've never felt like a sheep, you know, I've never, I've never felt like it, it, it makes me, weaker, any weaker to wear a mask. Um, you know, when I went and visited my grandmother in, in a, in a nursing home, I had to wear, um, obviously, you know, if you go to a hospital and, um, you know, you're, you're sitting in the ER, um, waiting room, you're handed a mask to wear. I think it makes sense. Um, but you know, this president is obviously, like you said, affected by very much affected by the, you know, his perceived, I guess, sense of weakness and how other people perceive him. We're in an election year. This issue has been so heavily politicized. And I think once an issue like this or any other issue becomes heavily, heavily politicized, like you said, he takes a stand and he sticks with that stand. And I think that there is a certain, you know, group of Republicans that that has also adopted this stance and they're looking at him as justification. And in a situation like this, he should be putting pressure on governors to, you know, sort of mandate the mask wearing um, and certainly local, you know, more more local officials, uh, you know, county leadership, city leadership to mandate the mask wearing. But I mean, yeah, I, I agree I I, on that part. Like when I give yeah. I give Governor Governor Abbott in Texas their credit for finally doing what I felt was the right thing for mandating yeah. masks for counties with more than 20 cases. And, you know, though, it wouldn't have yep. it wouldn't have cost the president much to, to just basically send out a tweet saying, you know, good for Governor Abbott, you know, taking care of his people, that sort of thing. But that, again, I think he just sees that as sort of a, a nod toward capitulation. And so, and you know, some some politicians are better at 
building consensus and that sort of thing. And some politicians, that's just not their, that's just not their thing. And that's, that's not who Donald Trump is as a human being. And so it would be, it would be weird to expect him to just change who he is as a person. He's gotten to the point that he's gotten, which is a pretty impressive point by being a certain way and by highlighting, uh, in a, put it charitably by highlighting differences and, uh, and that's not that's not going to change now. And that's that's just that's just really uh, too bad. I, I will say on this that, that you know, I, I get I think there is something to be said for the view on the right that, hey, this is this is definitely bad. There's no question. And when you take a look at, you know, how we're doing in terms of bending the curve or crushing the curve in terms of a lot of other rich countries, it's not very good at all. But they're also saying, well, it's not like. Things in Houston aren't, for instance, like things were in New York City. And that's true for right now. Uh, but of course, what we've learned about this, you know, about this virus is things can get really bad really quick. And uh, so I do think sometimes that, you know, it, this is over, it can be overplayed because we always look at worst case scenarios. But given, given you know, the severe ramifications, I, I think it's, it's important not to just poo-poo this thing because too many people see that and just say, oh, well, yeah, we don't really have to worry about it because our deaths aren't that bad or something like that. And that, I just think that's, uh, that's not a good way to look at it. Yeah, I, you know, um, as I was researching this, I, I, I have a good friend who's a doctor. She's actually, um, she's the co-director of the COVID response at a big sort of local chain of hospitals here in South Florida. And I talked to her a lot because when all this began, um, she was sort of my like, like, a, I guess, resource on the ground level, you know, because it's, it's, if you don't know somebody or if you don't know a lot of people who are in the medical community, but if you don't know somebody who's actually involved in the COVID response, um, so, you know, I mean, obviously, I think it goes without saying, it's very hard to get a straight story from the news either. You know, if, if you're watching left leaning sources, right leaning sources, it's so hard right now to get to get a straight story and a timeline and to understand what's really going on. And from the beginning, um, and and again, this isn't necessarily an excuse, but I think it I think it explains where a lot of the frustration comes from um, on on the right and on the left to some extent too. From the beginning, she expressed concern about the way COVID was being reported in the news, um, and she said it's not so much the the data that's coming from hospitals and the data that's you know coming from these you know, from the CDC and the, the World Health Organization. It's the way that, that you know, numbers are being conflated. And, um, you know, she acknowledged, she's by no means a Republican, but she acknowledged from the start that there were issues with it and that there were legitimate questions that needed to be asked. And I don't think a lot of people disagreed with that. Um, but the, the issue is that I think over time, this has been compounded and compounded and compounded, and it's led to even more distrust of the media, both on the right and on the left, is, you know, are we you know, blowing it out of proportion in one direction, or are we, you know, dismissing it too quickly in the other direction? And it's led to this, I don't want to, I don't want to call it fatigue, but that seems to be what it is, where we've, we've sort of adopted these ideas a long time ago, and we're set in our ways. And I think, I, I think this is what Donald Trump is going through right now. I think this is what a lot of people on the right and left are going through right now. And the truth is that just in terms of policy, this is, this is, something that's very, very fluid. And these numbers change every day. And when you combine sort of this mistrust of the media and, you know, some of the inaccuracies in reporting on, you know, whether you're watching CNN, Fox News, it seems so heavily politicized. It's hard to take the threat seriously one way or the other. And so 
what I'm finding um, frustrating is having to sift through sources to find actual data. And again, like I know I've brought this up on the show before, but sometimes when I'm trying to find a timeline or I'm trying to find numbers, actual concrete numbers where I can, where I can, you know, sort of formulate an opinion, um, you know, it, it, this is becoming harder and harder and harder the longer this, this, you know, draws on. So I feel like, um, you know, most of us looking from the outside and I'm not part of the medical community, but talking to her and hearing her frustrations um, really drives home a, a lot of those points. And again, it's it's not an excuse necessarily, but I think it explains why we are why we are where we are right now, um, and why there's there's so much back and forth, and and why people are frustrated in either direction. Yeah, there definitely are a lot of frustrated people all over the place. That's for sure. Sure. Well, you know, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we take a break? from COVID for, you know, let's get radical, the entire rest of the episode. You think we can do that? I uh, Yeah, I think we could do that. I, you know, fatigue has set in, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I think maybe, maybe even with listeners, but we have so many other things to talk about as well, you know, I, and I actually thought we were going to lead with this, but we just kind of, it was kind of a natural segue into the mask and COVID thing, but that, the whole big thing this week about the Russian bounties, right? Yeah. So again, this is another one of these stories that was hard to get. It was hard to get a timeline. I just wanted a time, basic timeline of how this broke down. And it was so hard to find. Um, very, very difficult. So um, in gen- going back to um, January of this year, we'll start at the beginning of this year, even though this issue goes back a couple of years. In January of this year, uh, the New York Times reported that U.S. intelligence officers began to warn their superiors about a suspected plot among uh, Russian intelligence officials to pay bounties to these Afghan militias for killing U.S. and coalition troops. So that's kind of where this all begins. And um, fast forward to June, there were you know some things that happened. Um, the Navy SEAL Team Six discovered uh, five hundred thousand dollars during a Taliban raid, and the Taliban obviously uh, was claiming responsibility for killing U.S. troops. This has been going on for a couple of years. So anyway, fast forward to uh, late June, the New York Times reported. Um, about a Russian plot and that US intelli- the U.S. intelligence community and the Trump administration had been debating how to handle these reports. Um, and this obviously caused a stir. The White House quickly denied that the president had been briefed on this issue and also claimed that the vice president, uh, Vice President Pence, had also not been briefed on this issue about um, bounties paid for, you know, bounties on um, U.S. troops and coalition troops heads paid for by Russians to members of the Taliban. Um, and so initially, the White House said that they would not comment on intelligence reports or internal deliberations. And so then this past week, everything's sort of hit the fan and things have been a bit chaotic. Biden and Trump are launching attacks and counterattacks over this. Uh, Democrats have accused the president of knowing about the suspected plot and demanding briefings from the intelligence community. Trump called it a hoax. Uh, Republicans claim there was no consensus within the intelligence community. The plot could not be verified. Several officials close to the president claim they were not aware. And now Adam Schiff has sort of gotten involved. Um, There are now questions surrounding how much Adam Schiff uh, knew. He's the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and when he knew it. So we've sort of devolved into another chaotic mess. And and with everything going on right now, it just seems like uh, this is something we need to be paying attention to and talking about. And I'm sure you have some opinions about it, Mike. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I. My first thought was uh, when a report comes out that uh, that Russians may or may not have uh, 
but may possibly have been putting out bounties on American troops. Uh, the initial word from the White House, I don't think should be, well, uh, from the president shouldn't be, well, no one told me. Uh, I, I think that's that's just, wow, uh, incredibly puzzling. I, I would say that the initial response should have been just the opposite. Even if the president were briefed, uh, not being in the loop or an impression that you're not in the loop on something that's apparently important enough where we told our uh, some of our allies about it uh, that makes that makes you sound weak and ineffectual uh so i think it's, the response should have been yeah i meant we were absolutely aware of this uh, it's unverified intelligence but uh, if we find out that this actually did happen we are going to hit back and hit back hard and here are the sort of things we're going to do but instead that well I, we got a very opposite response which is puzzling to me again because this would be a perfect opportunity for Donald Trump to demonstrate that he's not in any way beholden to Russia or Putin or anything like that and we know that's a big concern of his so that the response just seems to me to be that the administration or the president kind of shooting himself in the foot here i, I wasn't briefed that's Wow. Uh, well, then, if you weren't brief, that maybe there's a problem with your briefers or, you know, I, I don't know. But it sure sounds like something you should have been briefed about if, if we briefed the UK about it. Yeah, I um, I have a lot of questions sort of involving how this all went down and both the Republican and the Democrat responses to it, because, um, you know, obviously, I, I knew as soon as this this story started, I guess, foaming up in, in the media. I started to look at Adam Schiff and I thought to myself, you know, he, he's obviously got to come out and say something. Initially, he said he had no comment. Then he came out and he he denied it. He he also, you know, expressed that he hadn't been briefed. And then all of a sudden it became this big political issue. And then Donald Trump said that he hadn't been briefed, he called it a hoax. I personally would hold both sides responsible. I think that what's happened here is that there was probably um, some some preemptive reporting on the part of the New York Times, um, which doesn't surprise me when it comes to the New York Times. They're fans of, of jumping the gun on a lot of these, uh, into, especially reporting on intelligence issues. And, you know, all it sort of felt like maybe they were in the midst of trying to come to a decision. I know um, people on both sides mentioned that this, that the intelligence they had wasn't actionable. And so nothing, no decision had been made yet. All of a sudden, they were sort of both sides were caught with their pants down. And um, so there was this struggle, especially on Monday going into Tuesday on both sides of people saying, well, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, but instead of saying I didn't know about it and then all of a sudden turning it into this political issue, I wish that both sides had owned up to it and not immediately turned it into a political issue. And, and it felt like all of a sudden it became a campaign issue. It shouldn't have been. It probably should have been something that needed to be looked into and they needed to present a united front on that. But I think that's asking too much during this yeah. election year. And at this time, um, I just I, I had wished for different responses on both sides, I guess. Um, well, and, yeah. and I and I didn't get it. Yeah. I, well, I OK, I, I think that's a reasonable response. But also, I would point out that the president of the United States is the president of the United States. And there's a big difference between being in that position and the responsibility for national security and responding to threats than someone who's, uh, you know, who's chairing a House committee. Uh, and so I think there's a danger, certainly where we can recognize that both sides responded in a way that we would not necessarily have like to see in a perfect in a more perfect world 
I also think there's the danger of a, a false equivalence because the president is the primary is the primary person responsible for this. He's it's his it's his national security briefings. He's the one who gets the brief. He's the one who picks the staff. That's a very different situation from someone like Adam Schiff or any Democrat that you could name strictly by the the you know by the fact that the president is the president. And so you can acknowledge well, okay, maybe maybe Adam Schiff's response was not great, but the primary the primary response we need to be concerned about is that of the president of the United States because he's he's the guy on this. And so that's my concern is that it's too easy to, to turn this into a well, you know, both sides both sides uh, didn't do the right thing. I mean, Donald Trump's the president of the United States, and he has a heightened responsibility, certainly far more than Adam Schiff does in these matters. You know, I guess it feels disingenuous when you have a situation where multiple people on both sides weren't briefed. Um, You know, I don't think that this is necessarily um, creating a false equivalency where you have Multiple people, Democrats, Republicans, high level officials, the president of the United States, who may or may not have been briefed, um, who, you know, may have been briefed on this, but maybe they were told that this wasn't actionable yet. They were still trying, you know, a lot of these stories coming out of um, the Middle East haven't been verified yet. A lot of the claims that this money, you know, paid to Taliban may or may not have come from Russia. I mean, nothing can be verified, but I feel like it, it, it feels disingenuous. When initially Democrats come out and say, well, we're not going to comment on that. This is a developing story. And some even admit that they hadn't been fully briefed and that, you know, nothing had been actionable. And then all of a sudden it becomes this blown up, hyper politicized issue. I understand that it's an election year. I understand that it's 2020, but it feels disingenuous if, if you're looking at it from and, and, and I'm not saying that that. President Trump's response was a good response. It wasn't. I totally agree with you that he should have come out and said, well, you know, actually, yes, I, you know, I was sort of briefed on this. Um, you know, right now things are developing, whatever, whatever the response was, you know, just just admit the truth instead of saying I haven't been briefed on it or, or you know, shutting reporters down and saying no comment, because obviously this is out there. The New York Times has reported it on Monday, the AP report. I mean, there were lots of different media outlets that were reporting it. And, and, you know, the American people deserved an answer. The cat's out of the bag. But it just it I think from a Republican standpoint, it it feels once again like an opportunity, like the Democrats have seized on this opportunity to paint things in a light um, that 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 feels very disingenuous, especially since a day earlier, they were claiming that, you know, they had nothing to say, that they may or may not have been briefed and, and agreeing that the president may or may not have been briefed. It just, it, there's a disconnect there. <laughs> and, and it's, and it's hard to overcome that. Um, but of course, I guess all is fair in love and war <laughs> when it's an election year. And especially in 2020, this year seems to just get crazier and crazier. Um, so I'm having to sort of like put things in the context of 2020, but it's, I'm I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that, how this became such an issue. Now you have Democrats calling for investigations and committees investigate. It just it's it's just like another thing, you know, another 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 story. And I think that's why a lot of Republicans are are dismissing this and aren't taking this as seriously as maybe they should, um, because it just it feels disingenuous. When you say disingenuous, you mean like this is fake news designed to hurt the president or I'm I'm not, no. I'm not sure what you mean by that. No, 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 it, it, no, no, no. And I don't and I don't think that that all of this is a hoax. But I, I think what happened was, um, you know, 
all of the people above, including the president, were caught. You know, there. I think the, the New York Times, you know, published the story, probably shouldn't have published the story because they didn't have all of the information and all of the facts. And it was a developing situation, at least it sounds this way, based on what I've heard from Democrats, what I've heard from Republicans. And they had to say something and they said the wrong thing. They, you know, they kind of like push things down the road and or kick the can down the road. And I think what feels disingenuous is that initially this was the response from Democrats. And and I'm not saying that they should have been leaders on this. I mean, obviously, the the, the president and, and his spokesperson, you know, Kelly McEnany should have to this and said, you know, yes, this is an ongoing situation. And <clears throat> some of that started to kind of come out as the week went on. And, and, uh, and also Kaylee McEnany did a poor job of sticking to one story. You know, she said that the president had been briefed and then hadn't been briefed. And it just, it felt very disorganized. But I think in the chaos of all of this, um, when, when Democrat leaders, and I'm thinking of Nancy Pelosi, I'm thinking of Adam Schiff initially said that they didn't have a comment and that this was a developing situation and that it's possible the president hadn't been briefed. All of a sudden, within a matter of 24 hours, it's like they circled the wagons and they said, oh, we're going to make this an, an issue. And all of a sudden it became it went from zero to, to 100. And really, this this was an opportunity for the right and the left, I think, to probably unite on on something that looked very damning for for Russian officials and for these, count, you know, these intelligence officials. And and I feel like that didn't happen. And I guess that that's where my disconnect is. No, that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. So, uh, so yeah, but I, I, obviously I, I hope that this is, you know, the intelligence, uh, relevant intelligence authorities pursue this. And if there is a strong, uh, a strong evidence that this did in fact happen, I, I hope that there will be repercussions, very strong repercussions though, uh, though, though we'll see about that, I suppose. So, you know, it was a it was a big week for the for the Supreme Court. I don't know how much we're going to get to, but there were a, a trio, actually, uh, of cases. And yeah. so uh, wh- where do you want to start with that, Kristen? So, yeah, so I uh, you want to start with I guess we'll start with uh, June Medical Services versus Russo. That's the Louisiana abortion sure, law. Case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Because that was kind of the that that took a lot of attention up at the at the beginning of the week, but um, yeah. So there were three big SCOTUS cases that were that kind of came down um, over the course of the week, and again with everything going on, um, you know, they didn't make as much news as some of the other juicier, I guess, news stories. But these are really, you know, anytime a SCOTUS decision comes down, um, I take notice because it's you know the the implications in terms of policy are usually so far reaching. So. Um, this one, uh, this one, this decision came down on Monday. So the Supreme Court in a five to four vote, and by the way, that'll be a theme in all three of these cases, the five to four vote, always decided by Chief Justice Roberts. He's always in the hot seat. Yeah. Um, this, so in a, uh, in a Supreme Court five to four vote, um, the Supreme Court decided to strike down a Louisiana law requiring abortion providers to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, um, claiming that this had placed an undue burden on patients who were seeking uh, abortions. So regarding this case, uh, abortion rights activists said from the start that the law could lead to all but one abortion provider in the state of Louisiana being shut down. Um, And this would also make legal abortions inaccessible. It would endanger women's health. 
And anti-abortion activists concluded that the ruling was a knock on not just the pro-life movement, but on the issue of state sovereignty. So this was sort of the argument going back and forth. And um, and I should note before we get into it that um, that this ruling relied on precedent, which, again, Chief Justice Roberts um, tends to kind of go with precedent, at least lately. Um, he's he's very he's he's very tied to that. And in this case, there was a an almost identical case out of Texas in 2016 um, that dealt with similar issues. And um, so that was what he relied on for his ultimately hit what was what came down to his decision. Um, so I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts about this? Well, I think that the votes of eight of the nine justices were entirely predictable. And Justice Robert, yeah. Chief Justice Roberts vote was unusual, very unusual, because this is, as you pointed out, uh, the, the Hellerstadt decision was 2016. So it's a very recent precedent. And the facts of the case are almost, well, are incredibly on point to the, this Louisiana case. And so what, you know, what the Chief Justice basically said is, well, you know, uh, uh, stare decisis requires us to, you know, uphold that decision. But the unusual part is that in that same opinion, Chief Justice Roberts said, but I disagreed with that not even yeah. five-year-old precedent, but because it's a precedent, I'm going to uphold it. Now, one would think that, well, if you are going to overturn any precedent, it would be one that you disagreed with that's only a few years old. That's sort of the least strong of any sort of precedents. And so it's it's puzzling to a lot of people. And I think there are a couple of ways of looking at what Justice Roberts did, Chief Justice Roberts did. And one is you mentioned or, or alluded to it already, is that he has a great uh, respect for precedent and judicial restraint and that sort of thing. And that's, in fact, what he argues you know, in his concurrence. Uh, Another way to look at it, though, is, is some people on the left have argued this, is that he's sort of playing a long game, if you will, in moving the court to the right or asserting the court's independence. And he doesn't want to send the message that, well, two Donald Trump presidential appointments automatically mean we're going to shift our views, you know, stop on a dime, turn around on a dime, that sort of thing. And so I, I think I think it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. My sense of uh, John Roberts is that he does have more respect for precedent than some of the much more activist judges on the court. And that's most of them. I mean, that's both on the left and the right. You know, you have, mm -hmm. for instance, Clarence Thomas, who said, we just need to overturn Roe. And he just basically flat out, you know, essentially said that in his in his mm -hmm. uh, uh, what he wrote. So I think there are a couple of the, really both of those things going on to the extent. I think just from a temperamental standpoint, John Roberts doesn't want to move the court too quickly. And, it, you know, it certainly wouldn't surprise me if he has some strategic motives for doing that as well. He certainly bristled when Donald Trump talked about, you know, Obama judges and Trump judges and that sort of thing. So yeah. I guess I guess there's a you know, there's there's a lot going on there. And I know I tend, even though I'm you know on the left, I tend to be a little more, a little less skeptical of Robert's motives than say Ken. And Ken and I have talked about this before. You know, he just, he just doesn't buy that at all. You know, he thinks that John Roberts is playing a completely cynical game. And that, I, I don't necessarily, uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, at least, you know, in, in its entirety. But one thing I wanted to ask you is that yeah. Pretty clearly, John Roberts 
has been a big disappointment to a lot of people mm-hmm. on the right. And I'm I'm wondering why you why you think that is. I'm kind of interested in your your comment or your thoughts on the the disappointment that is John Roberts, who's basically become sort of the slightly more right of center Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> Um, you know, I actually, when you were talking, I was thinking about that. Um, I was thinking about the fact that I have, um, a lot of friends on the right, um, who are even more right of me or, or maybe less though, um, who feel that John Roberts has let them down and, you know, without sounding, I guess, too overreaching, I think one of the issues that, that we have in in this country and, and just in the state of politics and society as it is right now is the fact that uh, we don't like activist judges unless there are activist judges. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. you know what I mean. Yep, yeah, yep. and and um, yeah, and I think I think you and I can definitely agree on that. And I think that um, you know, one of the things that that's hard as as a Republican to do, and I'm sure it's, it's hard as as a as a Democrat too, um, is you know, if you're <laughs> sort of of this mindset that activist judges are bad no matter what, and that we shouldn't be appointing activist judges in the first place because it contradicts everything about, you know, SCOTUS and, and everything about the judicial system as it was intended to, to be, um, you know, I think it's, it's hard to sort of wrap your head around the fact that sometimes, um, you know, when somebody disappoints you, it's because they're not ruling the way you think that they should be ruling. But, but you know, he's somehow, um, he's somehow getting around it or, or it's somehow an excuse that he's relying on precedent. And I, and I find that kind of disheartening. And I'm not saying Justice Chief Justice Roberts is my favorite judge. You know, he's not, but that tells you everything right there. Um, he's not an, he's not necessarily an activist judge. Um, and and I think the fact that we have predictability on both sides of the fact that, that we even have something, you know, it's the fact that we can even say both sides of the court and we know sure. judges yeah. typically rule is disheartening in itself if, if you're somebody who who, you know, understands these truths about about how SCOTUS was supposed to be and, and how the judicial branch was supposed to be. It's supposed to be as you know unbiased a branch as possible. It's, they're supposed to be beholden to the law. So I think that's why uh, Republicans, or I should say some Republicans, are so upset with, with Chief Justice Sean Roberts, because I think they expected him to be an activist judge in the same way that, you know, liberals um, and, and Democrats uh, a couple of months ago, there were a couple of rulings. Um, Justice Ginsburg made a couple of rulings where she sided with the more conservative judges. And my Democrat friends were outraged. I, you know, people who, you know, there there are books written about, you know, these almost like folk hero type, you know, kids books written about uh, Justice Ginsburg. And all of a sudden, it seemed like, um, you know, it seemed like all of a sudden they were turning on her. And And I think this is what's going on. There's this disillusionment on the right with with Roberts. And this, you know, applause around, you know, Justice Tom- Thomas, for example, um, and and Kavanaugh for upholding these, you know, activist ideals. And so that's where I think that comes yeah. from. Yeah, I, I would say that that John Roberts is the absolutely the least activist of the judges on the conservative end of things on the court. And I would I wouldn't be surprised if he is maybe pretty close to just the least activist in general on the court. And I actually think that that's the sort of role you would ideally want for a chief justice. Uh, So, uh, so, and I know that 
he's, you know, he takes that sort of role as being the chief justice and trying to build consensus and that sort of thing uh, uh, fairly seriously. And again, some people on the left are saying, oh, Mike, you're just so totally buying into his long-term plot to destroy the country and that sort of thing. But I don't know, I guess maybe, maybe I'm imputing more good faith to John Roberts than a lot of people on the, on the left. I don't agree with him on policy on most issues, but, but I think he, uh, to the extent that I could expect this of anyone on the courts, I, I think he tries to, tries to call them as fairly as, as he can. And that's, that's basically all the best I could hope for from a, from a, from a judge who I don't agree with in terms of policy and just general, you know, uh, uh, political ideology. So there you go. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, you know, it's, it's funny because when you do read, you know, SCOTUS blog or, you know, if you read these decisions, if they're ever written by um, just uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, or, you know, you see people opining about decisions that were made and, and um, you know, he wrote the opinion, for example, um, you often see right up front, people say, well, once again, he agreed with precedent. Once again, he went with precedent. Once again, he looked at this case, that case. And I think that that tells you a lot about him, not not necessarily good or bad, but like you said, it he respects precedent. And rather than being somebody who hides behind it necessarily, which is what I think a lot of people on the right are saying, I think it's just something he, he uses as he makes these decisions. He obviously is, he doesn't let his personal feelings get in the way of making those decisions, he sort of removes as much bias as he possibly can. You can't remove all of it, but, you know, he removes as much of it as possible and he relies on precedent. And he's very quick to say when he, dis- like in this case, in this, you know, in this opinion, he he's very quick to say that he doesn't necessarily agree with these decisions, but he relies on the precedent. And so, you know, I think he's going to continue to be a pretty controversial figure on both the right and the left. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think we, we probably, well, I think we probably have time to talk about one more Supreme Court ruling. Uh, we, we won't get to the okay. whole trio, but because uh, obviously there, you know, we said there were three big ones. And that other, the other one maybe we could talk about a little bit is on, uh, on uh, funding sort of indirectly of uh, uh, religious organizations. Yeah, Espinoza, Espinoza versus Montana. So, um, so this is a case um, that came from Montana, um, and again, again, going with our five to four vote theme and <laughs> reliance on precedent. Um, this, this, you know, sort of continues that theme, I guess you could say. Um, so, this was <clears throat> largely seen as a win for advocates of religious freedom. The Supreme Court ruled by a five to four vote. Um, that the Montana Supreme Court violated the free exercise clause when it applied a state constitutional no-aid provision to bar religious schools from receiving scholarship money under a state tax credit program. And, of course, it overturned this ruling. Um, critics were claiming that religious schools were benefit unfairly benefiting from this special income tax program um, that was going on. And um, this helped fund nonprofit scholarship organizations to help low-income families pay for private school education. So this, it's funny because um, you had, um, I, I think that this kind of just speaks to the fact that Chief Justice Roberts really isn't necessarily an activist judge or in the tank for the conservative side. And, and this is one of those things that I think frustrates and confounds a lot of conservatives is the fact that, well, you know, you ruled this way on this, but then using precedent using the same set of rules you ruled, you know, in sort of this conservative win, which frustrated a lot of Democrats, I think, but um, in this sort of win for, for uh, religious freedom. And so, you know, I, th- I think it just, I don't know, I think it demonstrates his lack of 
judicial activism, if anything else, in light of every, you know, in light of the other decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I I think that the majority did make the right call here. I think, you know, people who disagree and plenty of plenty of folks on the left disagree with this decision, and obviously four justices did, that, you know, tend to point to the establishment clause, which, of course, prevents an establishment, prohibits an establishment of religion. But and that doesn't mean just not formally establishing a state religion, but any sort of any sort of program or funding that promotes religion. But I don't think that this violates the establishment clause. Because the legislature, the Montana legislature here wasn't giving money to religious schools. Now, had they been giving money directly to religious schools, I think yes. then that would have not been constitutionally okay. And that would have been a violation of the Establishment Clause. But instead, the legislature was giving a tax credit to people who contributed to a tuition scholarship program that all private schools, religious or non-religious, were, were eligible for. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the majority, I think around 70 percent of private schools in Montana have a religious affiliation, that's that's immaterial in my view, Uh, because the First Amendment, at least the the religion parts of the First Amendment, is designed in my reading to ensure that there's no special treatment for religion, certainly, but also to ensure that people were able to practice their religion without interference. That's, of course, the free exercise clause, so long as they don't, you know, infringe on the rights or safety of other people. But it absolutely, the First Amendment was absolutely not intended to put religious institutions at a disadvantage solely because they're religious. And so not allowing religious schools to take advantage of this program, which had no specifically religious promoting purpose, I think that would in effect be doing that. And so that's why I think that this, you know, this was the right decision. And also there's a view. There was a view expressed on the minority that, well, the court shouldn't have taken this up because there's no longer a live issue before them uh, because the program had been ended. But as uh, as Chief Justice Roberts pointed out uh, in his opinion, the program wasn't actually ended by the legislature, but by the Montana Supreme Court based on a state law that, in his view, and I think the majority's view correctly, uh, expressly discriminates on the basis of religion. And so, to me, I, I get why. People are, you know, on the left are upset about this, but it seems to me that this was, in in fact, the the right decision here. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you said it perfectly. I, I was I was going to add uh, the point that that you made, where um, you know, I think if this was a situation where this provision was being made, that money was actually being given to religious schools, I think we would have a whole other case. But that wasn't the case, and um, I think a, a lot of uh, critics of this decision were kind of conflating those two things from what I see, which, you know, happens anytime you have people who are opining over a Supreme Court decision. I think sometimes um, they're quick to compare it to, you know, other cases which take precedent um, or they're quick to conflate issues. And I think that was sort of the clincher here was that the, this this tax credit was being given to um I guess the, the the families of students. And and that was the the primary issue. And I also thought that this was a a proper ruling. I, you know, last night at dinner, <clears throat> I was talking, my husband's an attorney and we were talking about this case. I just asked him, you know, I knew I was going to have to prep this, uh, this story and, and, you know, create an intro. And I asked him about it and we got into a discussion about just what you mentioned about the fact that, the, you know, the way this country was founded and it wasn't founded. Um, you know, it was, it was basically founded on, on this idea that, 
people would come here seeking religious freedom and that you're free to practice religion or you're also free not to practice religion. And, and that's, you know, it's, a, it's something that's very personal. Um, it's, a, it's a personal choice and it's something that's protected. And I feel like it was further protected by this, this ruling. Um, I, w- I was happy with it because yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of religious freedom to practice it or not practice it. Yeah, I don't know. I got to say, though, it, it's sort of. I won't call it a reach exactly saying that somehow this, <laughs> this, uh, that this program or abolishing this program or sorry, eliminating the, the uh, Catholic schools or whatever, it's mostly Catholic schools somehow interferes with free exercise of religion that I, that doesn't necessarily track as well for me, but I, I do think it was discriminatory on the basis of religion and that's, you know, and that's not okay. So, so yeah, that's just a quibble anyway. So, yeah, um, why don't we close with some recommendations for this week? Uh, I can start, I guess. So why don't I start? Yeah, In fact, go ahead. I go, have go some very, it. I have some very date appropriate. Now, a lot of people will hear this after, I'm sure, Independence Day. But uh, if you are hearing this on Independence Day, I'm going to, I'm going to have my recommendations that are very on point. One is, you know, a lot of folks were talking about Disney Plus doing, uh, showing Hamilton, right? And if you don't have Disney Plus, of course, you, you don't get that. But, um, but uh, I saw on Facebook somebody saying, "Well, yeah, you know, what about uh, what about 1776?" And I, my heart warmed because 1776 is mm-hmm. one of my one of my favorite uh, patriotic sort of movies. I have watched it uh, most awesome. every yeah, it's it's, awesome. <laughs> most every most every Fourth of July for God knows how many years. I I have the soundtrack. I know all the songs by heart, and it just warms my heart and so that is my recommendation if you've never seen now if you're a certain type of person you're going to find it just unbelievably corny but i think you know independence day is about unbelievably corny in a way and in a good way i think but uh uh and so that is my sort of fun recommendation uh my more serious recommendation related to that is that Watching 1776 when I was very young sort of made me a huge fan of John Adams, who's kind of like my first presidential crush, if you will, kind of John Adams and, and T.R. are kind of the two presidents I love the most. But uh, I read God knows how many biographies of John Adams, and there are a couple I want to recommend. One is John Adams, A Life by a guy named John Furling, and I'm recommending this one over the David McCullough one, which I read as well, but everyone knows David McCullough's biography. And I think it's good, but it wasn't the best one. I think Furling's is a bit better. And if you really want to go old school, back in 1962, Paige Smith did a two-volume biography of John Adams, which is amazing. I I, I bought a copy, God, 20-something years ago, and then I, I don't know what happened to it. I lost it, and just yesterday I was thinking, whatever happened to that? And I went on and looked for a used copy, and I found a copy of well, for like $5 plus shipping, and I was just such a happy guy. So there still are used copies out there. That is the definitive biography of John Adams, a great American, uh, not so great of a president, but he was a great patriot and a great American and kind of a a disappointment as a president. But anyway, uh, those are my recommendations for this week. Yeah. What about you, Kristen? I agree with you about John Adams, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, I it's funny because the last few times that I've made recommendations, I've recommended more, I guess, more serious books and, and sort of, you know, heavy material that, that I found interesting. And today I, I kind of wanted to depart from that and, and recommend something really super uh, I guess lighthearted and something I've been enjoying with my family, um, and that's um, the Netflix show "The Floor Is Lava." 
I don't, have you heard of this? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it though. <laughs> it's so much fun. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those shows that like, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, the whole family can get into it. You could easily, I have friends without kids who watch it and, and get into it, but it's basically just a, a hilarious uh, show on Netflix and it's, it's gotten a lot of buzz. I decided to, you know, oh, okay, I'll, I'll watch it, you know, and I, and we, we tuned in and, and we laughed. We thought it was funny. We, you know, I, we attempted to play The Floor is Lava in our living room as the, we were watching the show. So it was just sort of a nice diversion from everything going on over the last few weeks. And if you need a break from the news, that's good. Um, and then the the other thing I wanted to suggest really quickly is, um, I don't, the, again, this isn't political in any way, but there's a, uh, a writer who's been making headlines lately. I, I believe it's, it's his fourth book that just came out. His name is Riley Sager. It's actually a pen name um, for... I don't know what his real name is, but his, his, the writer's name is Riley Sager. And he just um, he just came out this or earlier this week with a new book. He writes sort of like these haunted house mysteries with great twisty endings that are just not serious and, and fun and quick to read. And his latest book is called Home Before Dark. I'm about halfway through it right now. Um, I, I downloaded it the, the day it came out, which was <laughs> like midweek. And it's and I'll tell you what I've just been zooming through it and it's such a, a such a cool diversion if you like haunted house type mysteries and twisty endings and it's very he's been compared to like Alfred Hitchcock which is I don't know and as a mystery lover in my opinion that's like the highest compliment you can give anybody but um, yeah his his stuff is is pretty cool and it's just an, a fun diversion so if you haven't checked out Riley Steger's books or The Floor Is Lava you should check those out. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sounds interesting. And, you know, we are out of time for today, but if you are a supporter, we're going to have a midweek show where we talk about, uh, let's see, we're going to talk about another su big Supreme Court case, one near and dear to my yep. heart, because I, as long-time long -time listeners know, I love, 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 love the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, uh, my favorite thing about Dodd-Frank, which I sort of liked. And, uh, but anyway, there was a big ruling about that. And also, uh, Kristen, I know something uh, that's very near and dear to your heart, Facebook and the big Facebook yeah. boycott and everything surrounding that. I have some thoughts on that. Maybe something that'll be surprising to a few people. Uh, we might get into, you know, there's another book apparently about the, here's a shock, dysfunction in the Trump family that, that may be coming out at the end of this month. And who knows, we might get to a few other things here and there, but that it will be waiting for you. We're well, not waiting for you, but that will be there for you midweek if you are a supporter. And if you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and you can sign up and there's all kinds of other good stuff, various levels of support, not just more content. That's I know the main thing that people come there for. And of course, if you cannot afford to, you know, uh, uh, help us out there financially, we totally get that. Just send me an email, Mike at politics .com, and I'll get you set up with full access to all of our content. And uh, also, you know, one thing that everyone can afford is just to subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially sharing is a big, big help. So if you could share favorite episodes, that kind of thing on social media, that would definitely help us out. And of course, if you just generally want to get in touch with us to say hi, or you have a question, comment, that sort of thing, mail at politicsguys.com. And there's our bipartisan politics subreddit, which you all know about at this point, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. 
Today's show is produced by us, Mike and Kristen, and we'll be back with a new show for you next week. We hope you'll join us.